0: Time. I wanted to first uh, mention a few verses that I didn't fit in last time from the previous chapters of the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, Nothing's on the board. My God. I no longer, no longer work for a living. So um, you remember when we discussed Buddhism that um, that Nagarjuna actually Nagarjuna, one of the main doctrines of Buddhism looks dependent origination, the idea that nothing exists independently, everything exists dependently. And uh, Krishna in a sense addresses this idea in chapter 10, something which I didn't get around to yesterday. Krishna says at 10.2 that namavi do su ganhana maharshi, that even the gods, uh, and the great sages, maharshi do not know my origin. I, indeed, am the origin of the gods and of the sages in all respects. And so it's a simple argument that you cannot have direct experience of your own conception. I mean, assuming that no one here is a sort of a self-born alien disguised as a human. If everyone here actually has human parents, then at a certain point your parents conceived not in the mental sense, in the physical sense, conceived you there's a reproductive act. And precisely because they're your parents, you were not, you don't have personal experience of it. And so you have to take it their word for it that we're your parents. So nowadays you can do genetic testing and all that. So you don't have to take your parents' word for it anymore. But but the idea is that, that if A is the source of B, then B in a sense is not in a really a position to know the source of A. And so what is claiming here is to be causeless, that he's not dependently originated. In other words, it's a very common idea in theology, in, in many religions, the idea of a, something which is the cause of all causes, something which has, is not caused itself. Aristotle talks about his unmoved mover, the unmoved mover that, uh, if you know if you know, your Aristotle, the idea is that everything moves in this world because it's kind of drawn almost by some type of magnetism to God. And um, and yet God is not moved by anything else. God is the unmoved mover. That's the uh, sort of the starting point of Aristotle's philosophy. So the same way Krishna is saying that because I'm the origin of great sages, because the great sages are the ones that talk about this. You may remember in the Rig Veda there's that famous uh, Nasatya verse, like uh, you know before this universe did something exist? Maybe it didn't exist. Maybe the gods know. Maybe they don't know. So the great sages are speculating. And the gods themselves, but Christians here saying they don't know my origin because I'm their origin. And that if one who knows me as beginningless becomes liberated. Somehow of the knowledge that Krishna does not, does not depend on anything else, that, that he independently exists, autonomously exists, that somehow this will lead one to liberation. Anyway, so... Um, then at the end of chapter 10... Uh, after identifying himself, I'm sure you all read the text. That after identifying himself with all the uh, all kinds of extraordinary features of the material world, Krishna said that, uh, what will be, what is the use of this detailed description? Because suffice it to say, I, by a simple part of my power, by simple like uh, sometimes translated spark of my splendor that I pervade and sustain all the world, so that. Uh, whatever you perceive in this world that's extraordinary, that's powerful, that's especially beautiful, or whatever, is just a, a little part, a little spark of the glory of God. That's basically the message here. So then Arjuna is going to follow up on that. And so chapter 11, in a sense, is Arjun's follow-up questions. Like, okay, everything extraordinary in the universe is coming from you, Krishna, or somehow... Uh, what Krishna calls literally uh, my tejo, and tejo means splendor, and anksha means a part, it's just a part, a particle of my splendor, of glory. So, uh, Arjun wants to know about this, and he says that, if you think I'm able, please show me that form, That for, he, Arjun wants to see a form of God, of Krishna, which actually shows this pervasive uh, power of God. And so, then Krishna says, "In uh, Krishna says that you will see here in one place the entire universe, and it's not all crunched together. It's not like it all fell into a black hole and got pulverized or something. It's Krishna says that and this is obviously beyond the laws of physics. We were just talking about that, and so uh, the question would be, in a sense, the universe as we know it, the laws of physics as we know it." if there is something like a god, is that god also bound by the laws of physics? Or, uh, is, is god somehow the maker of the laws, laws of physics and beyond those laws? And so here, I mean, definitely the Bhagavad Gita would say that god is beyond the laws of physics as we know them now or as we may know them in the future. Because Krishna says, stam jagat kritsnam. Kritsnam, is it? Some other word. Um, yeah, kritsnam. That here in one place you can see the entire universe with all its variety in one place. So, and then Krishna says, but to see that I have to give you the Dhammi, the divine eyes, divine vision. This is another important point that in order to see this one has to receive divine vision. Uh, Because our present eyes, our present powers are not sufficient to actually see these things. That's what Krishna is teaching in the Gita that one actually has to receive this, this power, the power to see. So it's... Uh, the idea is that we have the power to see these things, but we have to somehow receive that power. Just like you have the... I mean, if you started out today, for example, and you wanted to reinvent all human knowledge in every field, whether it's mathematical, or you know, the physical sciences, or historical, philosophical, every field of human knowledge you started out today, and you wanted to just discover, it, rediscover, it all yourself, without learning anything from previous uh, thinkers, previous people. Now, first of all, you couldn't do that because you wouldn't have language. There, they say that one time a king did an experiment. They, they took a human infant and put it out in the forest, in the wilderness, with no contact with other people, to see what would happen. The child basically uh, what's that? A feral child. Yeah, feral child, exactly. Mm-hmm didn't really get past the brute animal stage. And so our, the very fact that we speak language and, and the very fact that we can conceptualize, we think. If you think about it, we, we think verbally. Like, when you think to yourself, like, I should have said this or why did she say that? I mean, we use words to think. And even our language acquisition is a social reality. And so in a sense, if there's the, the logic here is that if there is a God, and, and if there is a relationship with God, that is a social reality. It, it, it's a social reality, and, and so there's certain things you can learn by that contact, just like universities are, in a sense, they have a, there's a whole sociological dynamic. You don't just stay at home and read books. You come, you sit in classes. Even on internet courses, you know, you interact with the teacher, you interact with the students. So there's a social dynamic to knowledge acquisition, and in the case of God, one could say it, it's simply a different sociology. But, but, but it's the same basic principle that you're in relationship with another conscious being and through the dynamics of that relationship you acquire certain knowledge. And that's what Krishna is claiming here. So then there's this spectacular uh, display of, of what is called the or the universal form in which, I mean, if you read it, I don't have to go over all the details, but it's 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 as if thousands of suns were rising at once. I mean, imagine you really need your ray bands. If, if thousands... So this is the image of thousands of suns rose at once into the sky. That would simply give a hint of the effulgence of what Arjuna is seeing. And... Uh, Arjun's reaction. Arjun, at a certain point, at at a certain point, it's like, great, wow, this is really fantastic, I love it. But then at a certain point, it starts to get a little disturbing. And uh, I think that really begins at text 20, where this very, sort of like, super psychedelic vision uh, starts to become disturbing. And Arjun says that um, the three worlds are disturbed seeing this uh, amazing form of yours, this frightening form. And uh, finally, in text 24, Arjun says, mm-hmm. Oh, Vishnu. It's very interesting that here, Arjun starts calling Krishna Vishnu. Because Vishnu is, is, of course, a name of God from the Rig Veda, the earliest text. And so Vishnu, in fact, the word Vishnu is, um, comes from, a lot of people believe that it comes from the central of Vish, which means to enter or penetrate. So Vishnu means the all-pervading one. And so, the idea of Vishnu is sort of like this beneficent god, whereas Krishna is Arjuna's buddy. Krishna is Arjuna's best friend. They have a very intimate relationship, and yet seeing all this magnificence, all this this powerful manifestation, Arjuna's kind of like reverting back to this Vedic Vishnu because he, he's, he's becoming frightened and disturbed. And uh, so... In a sense, the intimacy is gone in his relationship now. He's just calling Krishna Vishnu. And he says, um, seeing this, that within myself, uh, he's, he basically says, dritim Vindami vindhamis. something like saying, Sanskrit, I, I, I'm losing my mental stability. Because, this is, I mean, seeing the whole universe in one place, like thousands of sun, suns rising at once, it, it, it's, it's very, it's, it's overwhelming. For, the, for a human mind. A vision like that would be overwhelming for the human mind. And so Arjun says that that uh, and, and I, I'm not finding peace. Literally, I don't find peace. I don't find mental equilibrium or, or stability because it just... And, and then at a certain point, he says that um, text 25, Disho Literally, I don't know the directions. And if you think about it, uh, we all know, like up, down, sideways, and if suddenly you were in a situation where you literally couldn't figure out what was up or down or sideways, or so, Krishna so says, "I don't know the directions." He's completely losing his mental equilibrium, and he and so, so he begins to pray. And finally, at, at text 31, Arjuna asks Krishna, "Begavti me chami I want to understand you." You know, it's, it's like, imagine if you were talking to one of your best friends and suddenly all kinds of planets start coming out of your best friend. And, <laughs> and like, hey, Bill, what happened? So, <laughs> so at that point, Arjun says, I want to understand you. I want to understand you. And... Uh, who are you? Akyahime, explain to me. Kovavan, who are you? In this frightening form, Ugarupa. Deva prasida. I bow to you. So, so the friendship is kind of collapsing here, and Arjuna is overwhelmed and frightened. And he says, I bow to you, best of gods. Be gracious. I want to understand you, and so on. Who are you? And then Krishna's answer is very interesting. Krishna says, Kalos me. Time I am time I am. So, and so to get the impact of this answer uh, you have to know a little Sanskrit, so I'll it's, uh, well, I have plenty of room today. Uh, the Sanskrit word for time here is kala, so Krishna says kala smi. sweet. Time I am. And so this uh, word kala for time comes from Sanskrit root kal, which means to impel or drive forward. So time is not merely a medium through which events take place, through which the sequences of events take place Time is the force that drives things to their destiny. In other words, uh, from the point of view of all the religions we've studied, practically Buddhism and, and uh, Vedanta and so on, we're born with some karma. We're all born with karma. It's like you have a seed. You plant a seed and water it. Uh, the seed has a destiny. If it's watered, and that is to grow. It's going to grow into a tree. Uh, Aristotle called this the formal cause. He, Aristotle has the system of causes. The idea that things, a seed under the proper conditions has a destiny to turn into, let's say, a tree. Or let's say someone has a particular karma, like at a certain point in your life, you know, according to your astrologer or something. Uh, anyway. Let's say at a certain point in your life something's going to happen. Never mind astrologers. But, and, and, and you feel this was destined to happen or whatever. So the idea is that time is not only the medium within which your life plays out, is actually the force which is driving everything to its destiny. So that, for example, we're all aging, time is passing, you can't call time out, even for one second. I mean, all the earthly power in the world, all the armies, all the whatever, you can't stop time even for a second. And and so, in in Sanskrit, time has the sense of this driving force which is moving everything to its destiny. And then Krishna says, and the destiny of everything is, of course, destruction. This is so much Buddhism. In the sense that if you take any particular object, remember our old friend the chalk? I don't know if it's the same chalk, but it's... Uh, anyway, uh, there's nothing in the world that can be done to preserve this. In a sense, this is the thrust of Buddhism. Or at least in one of their main philosophical points, that if you take any object at all, your own body, or the house you live in or your favorite skateboard or whatever. You can't preserve it. Let's say you want to preserve you, your house. So every so often you replace certain things in your house or you repaint it or you have to you know, maybe redo the plumbing. The idea is you're recreating the house. It's not the same house it was. And so everything is actually changing at every moment and nothing can be preserved and that's the nature of the world. It's the nature of all physical things. And the Buddhists talk about this, that everything's changing. But time is the force in the universe that's actually, that's actually moving everything, that won't let anything stay exactly the way it is. So that's the idea of time. And that's what Krishna answers Arjuna. Time I am. Loka uh, Chayakrit, destroyer of the world. Uh, and then Krishna says that this battle, in a sense, has already been fought. That I... That actually, all the soldiers in this battlefield—remember, we're still in the battlefield—have already been slain by time. I've, as time, I've already slain them. You, you simply become the instrument, the matram. The idea being that uh, Arjun, as as a bhakta serving God, can simply be the instrument of God's will. What in the in the um, that famous Christian prayer, "That will be done," and so on. So that's the idea here. Any questions on this so far? So um, what happens, basically, is that Arjun, after he sees this frightening form and he sort of submits himself to Krishna, and then he asks Krishna to sort of turn it off. Like, I don't think I can take any more of this. And he says he wants to see other forms of Krishna. If you know, well, in Hinduism, there, we haven't talked about it so much, but there are very famous four-armed forms of the deity. And, and you find these actually for many deities, even Shiva or Vishnu, or the goddess and so on. Sometimes they have, they have more than four arms, eight arms, or so. There's lots of arms. Anyway, so there's one very famous form of Krishna with four arms called Narayan. You may have seen this word. And so Arjuna wants to see that form, and ultimately uh, Krishna changes back into the form of Krishna. And what's very interesting about that when Krishna sort of turns off all these other forms and becomes Krishna again is that it's at that point that Arjuna becomes settled in his own natural state. In other words, that, that's a text, 10, sorry, 1151. a manusham rupam tavasomiyam Arjuna Seeing this human-like form of yours, Krishna, uh, which is sublime. Ida'ni, now, asmi samrita, I'm actually settled. And saccheta, I have regained my natural consciousness. And prakitingata, I'm in a sense back in my, my real nature. So, so the significance, philosophically here, is that although Arjuna experienced all these different forms of Krishna, it was in relationship to Krishna's more human-like form, his beautiful form, that sublime form that Arjuna himself was in his own true nature. If you think about human relationships, like some people, we don't want to be around them all the time because we can't be ourselves if you're in a relationship. You can't really be yourself around particular people. You can't say what you really feel. You just don't feel like you're really yourself. You have to be something else. After a while, it becomes kind of oppressive. And so Arjuna, in relationship to this universal form, in a sense, he was kind of losing his mind. And it's in relationship to Krishna, just good old Krishna. Two hands, two arms, and, uh, and Krishna was considered very beautiful. That All the historical records say that he was, he was extraordinarily beautiful, attractive. So it's actually in relationship to Krishna that Arjuna comes back to his own nature, which is a statement about the soul and God. Anyway, so that's chapter 11. Chapter 11 ends with Krishna saying uh, that it's very difficult to see this cosmic form which I've shown you. And to actually understand me, Krishna will go through, at text 53, 1153, he'll go through the, the whole gamut of Vedic and Hindu processes and reject them and say, these things will not empower you to actually understand me. So Krishna says, uh, not by the Vedas, not by asceticism, of the Shramana movement, asceticism. Not merely by charity, not by sacrifice, not by sacrifice, the change of ya. Is it possible to actually see me as you have seen me? Then Krishna says, it is only by Pure devotion. It is only by pure devotion. It's like you saying to someone that, uh, well, to quote uh, some, the sages of the 60s, the Beatles, uh, Money Won't Buy Me Love. Remember that? a song? Mm-hmm. Beatles were kind of, it's like, give me money, that's what I want, but money won't buy me love. So they were, I guess they were ambivalent. Anyway, they did have one song, which is Money, money and... and I mean, most people can't just be bought off. Like someone says, I want to possess you, I want to own you, so I'll buy you things. And in return for that, you basically are mine. And you'll basically live your life for my pleasure. It's a type of slavery, really. And uh, so Krishna's saying that in order to actually understand me, you have to do what you have to do to really be intimate with anyone. You have to like the person. You have to actually... Isn't it? I mean, don't we all reveal ourselves to the to other people to the extent that we feel we can trust them, to the extent we feel they really care about us? And so it's sort of a normal psychology operating here. No, I not have anything. To say. Oh, I wish I go. You're allowed to do it. Yeah. But only three times. Okay. For class. So <laughs> So that's chapter eleven. Then, chapter 12, uh, chapter 12, I'll divide it up very uh, briefly into a few sections. First of all, there is one of the most important uh, discussions between Krishna and Arjuna, where, where Arjuna directly flushes out this major issue in the history of religions, is God ultimately personal or impersonal? And at least as far as the Gita is concerned, different traditions give different answers. But the Bhagavad Gita will will state very strongly that the personal form or dimension or aspect of God is actually the highest above the impersonal. And so the way Arjuna phrases his question is um, Arjuna, again, is building on what Krishna just said. Krishna said, that I can only be known by pure devotion. So Arjuna says, okay... Some people do take to that path of pure devotion. But what about people that do something else? What about people that don't take to the path of, of pure love or pure devotion? Rather, they uh, they actually you say worship or um, meditate upon God uh, as something impersonal, eternal, but in objective. Something which has no manifest form, which has no personal form. And Arjun's question is, Arjun wants to know, uh, who are the yoga vittamas, And uh, you can actually understand this Sanskrit word. It's pretty simple. This is, Krishna says of these two groups, the personal, the impersonal, the fit, uh, yoga, you know, vit means knower, like English wit. Right? That's the English word, wit. Uh, it means knower. It, it's the root of the word veda. Veda means knowledge, so this is just one who knows. And tama, this is a suffix in Sanskrit which just means superb degree. The yoga knower ests. Anyway. In other words, who are the greatest knowers of yoga? Because the word yoga means to connect to the truth. That the word yoga means a link. So to say who who are the greatest knowers of yoga? Who actually understands what you're supposed to connect with and how you connect to it. So that's Arjun's question. Who are the yoga vitthomas? Who are the greatest knowers of yoga? And uh, Krishna answers that. Those who fix their minds in me and who are always engaged in worshipping me with uh, great faith, they are the greatest yogis. They me jukta tamā. They have connected to the truth at the highest level. And then the runner-up prize. Now we'll get the silver medal. For those who are uh, focused on the impersonal. The impersonal, Krishna says, that uh, they also achieve me, but it, it, it's it's difficult. It takes a long time. It's like trying to put a square peg in a round hole. I mean, mean, imagine if you are trying to get on the good side of someone, but you sort of treat them as an object. You're not really personal with them. And, uh, like, you just got out of this really great physiology class. You just see someone as physiology. Actually, I mean, if you think about it, when people become very lusty, they do get kind of physiological or anatomical in the sense that uh, when someone, let's say, is really, like, on fire with sex desire, then the other person becomes that great anatomy. And the fact is that behind the anatomy, there's really a person, or there should be. I mean, hopefully there's, there's some <laughs> thinking creature within that anatomy. And so, the idea is that to treat someone simply as an object. Let's say you're doing business, and someone is just a deep pocket, like, I want to sell this product to that person. And so you take them out to lunch, and you're real nice, but all this personal stuff is really just to close the deal. So what you really want is the numbers. You want that person to write a check. And so treating people like objects, whether you want money from them, or you want them to vote for you, or uh, you want some sexual favor, or whatever, Uh, treating someone truly as a person, as Kant, the German philosopher Kant pointed out, is to treat someone as an end in themselves. In other words, you are not an instrument for my gratification. You have your own purposes. You're not an object of my consciousness. You're the subject of your own consciousness. And that's what it means to treat someone as a person, not as an object. That every one of you is the subject of your own consciousness. But if I see you instead as the object of my consciousness, you become subordinated to my purposes, rather than recognizing you have your own purposes. And so, even in theology, that's, in a sense, what Krishna is saying. That if someone, even approaching a personal god, say to get money or to get this or that, is still not... What Krishna is talking about by pure devotion, I should say a word on this, is that even if someone thinks there is something like a personal god, a god that can hear prayers and respond to prayers and so on, to approach god just to get some object is not really to fully treat god as a person. Just like if I approach you, because I want some money from you, or I want this, or I want you to vote for me, or whatever. It's not really accepting you in the fullest sense as an independent, free, valuable person. It's like you're valuable to the extent that you can satisfy my desires. And so whether we exploit other people like that, or try to exploit God like that, Krishna is saying that to be truly personal is even to see God as someone who's valuable in himself or herself, and not simply valuable to the extent to which God can send things that I want. And uh, you find this even in Christian mysticism, actually. You find it in every religion where there are certain mystics or certain devoted people who say that it's not just about getting things in return for prayers or rituals. It's really about um, developing a serious, mature, loving relationship with the deity. And so you find this divide in all religions. In all religions. Like you take the Sufis in Islam who made this point in opposition to the idea that you just pray to God to get all kinds of things. So that's what's being talked about here. And then something we already talked about earlier, Krishna gives this uh, these different levels where uh, basically just fix your mind in God. If you can't do that, if you're unable to do that, then just practice spiritual discipline. If you're unable to do that, then just try to work for God if you're unable to do that. I don't know, you know, work for the Red Cross or something. Try to do something. Try to do something for someone. Try to transcend just crass selfishness. That's also in chapter 12. Uh, any questions on those points? No? Not moving right along. So chapter 13, uh, well, it's sort of a sophisticated chapter, Uh, we'll talk about Sankhya in a little while, this is sort of the Sankhya chapter, so I don't know how much I'm going to say about this chapter right now. Uh, Krishna uses the language of the field, the knower of the field, the field is the body, the knower of the field is the soul within the body. Perhaps we'll go to chapter 14, and... uh, Unless you have a a question on chapter 13. Going, going. It's the end of chapter 13. So, chapter 14, Krishna talks about the modes of nature. These are uh, goodness, passion, and ignorance. And um, basically he's going to conclude by saying, everything is within these modes. Everything is within these modes. In other words, let's say you eat some food. Obviously, you might eat some food. So, when you eat food, food is in different qualities. Some food is very passionate. it's very spicy. It's very spicy, or it's um, very rich, it's very passionate. And, Krishna says, when you eat food like that, it tends to make you passionate. Or, if you eat food which is uh, obtained without violence. In other words, let's say, taking the milk of the cow rather than killing a cow or taking fruits from trees, milk, which, uh, food which is obtained with relatively low levels of violence against nature, then it actually has a calming effect on your consciousness in terms of people you associate with. As you know, some, pe- some people are very passionate, very ambitious, and or even s- selfish. Some people tend to be more peaceful, uh, more oriented toward kindness, more uh, interested in wisdom rather than simply you know, increasing their personal prestige and power. And so in, in, our, in our choice of friends, in our choice of food, in, in the kind of music we listen to, we're, we're constantly reinventing our consciousness. We're recreating our consciousness by these choices we're making. I mean, is that clear? So, so that, uh, well, let me, let's see if we have a few examples here. Another important point in this chapter is uh, something I wanted to talk about earlier in the semester, couldn't get around to, and that is uh, the the distinction between let's say sattva, which in the Gita and actually throughout Indian religions is material goodness, material goodness or virtue, and then the truly spiritual platform, which you can. I mean, a typical word they would use in Hinduism is adyatmika, uh, spiritual. And this word, adyatmika, is from the word adhi, which means over or above, and then akha. And it means something like a higher self. Because in ordinary life, you know, if you see someone's body coming, even if someone, let's say, was a yogi that thinks that actually the real person is not the body, it's the soul. But when you see someone walking towards you, you know, you smile and wave and that's so-and-so because... Or it's like you're filling out a form like, you know, uh, where were you born? I was never born, I'm an eternal soul, I've always existed. I mean you you can't really get credit cards that way. So <laughs> So the idea is the word the word self the word self, sometimes like we say like doing yourself or you know, a self service car wash or something. And so in Sanskrit also they use the word self in that way. Just to mean yourself. It's a reflexive pronoun or, but when you want to specify we're talking in a philosophical sense about the eternal soul then they use the adhi, adhyatma which means the higher self. We're really talking about the spiritual self now. And so the word adhyatma comes from that sense. So uh, Krishna says a few things about material goodness or material virtue. He says that it is um, prakasha. The word prakasha in Sanskrit means revelation, uh, kasha means light so prakasha is a typical word that means, that means revelation and so Krishna says that um, this material goodness is prakashakam it's enlightening, literally enlightening prakashakam and the word amaya this is the Sanskrit so from this chapter so the word amaya means a disease or trouble or some infection just you know something which is wrong with you and so the word anamaya, no amaya, means like, I just say in Australia, no worries, mate. So this is like no worries, like no problems. So Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita that goodness is prakashakam, it's enlightening, and anamaya. If you lead a virtuous life, if you eat, let's say, foods that are relatively uh, obtained with low levels of violence, If you associate with peaceful, good, virtuous people, you pursue wisdom. You are scrupulous about uh, being kind to other people, not violating other people, not even by words, and certainly not physically, and so on. And in other words, you're virtuous. Your life is about virtue. Then Krishna says that uh, it's enlightening. You will have a certain wisdom in your life. You will sort of be in a higher state of consciousness. You'll have a certain wisdom about you. And you won't suffer some of the real nasty things people suffer because it's like you're driving your body. Remember the body is the rata, the vehicle. You're sort of driving your car safely. You're a defensive, karmically defensive driver. And so therefore you're not really suffering grossly because you're not causing a lot of pain to others and therefore a lot of that pain is not coming back to you. You're not abusing your own body and therefore that suffering is not coming back to you. So it's an amya, no serious problems. So, Tasma Satsun Yamas after But then Krishna says that something does go wrong here. And that is, uh, well, I'll have a little fun to write it out for you. Sukha Sangena. So you can see, but uh, not This is what Krishna says. This is what goes wrong. Sanga means attachment here. And so by attachment to happiness. We heard, in Buddhism about dukkham, suffering. This is the opposite, sukham. This is happiness. So by attachment to happiness, uh, this sattva, this goodness, binds you to the world. In other words, precisely by being virtuous, you have a relatively happy life. And you have wisdom. Life is good. Life is beautiful. But the result of that is that one becomes attached to this world. Like, I figured it out. I figured out this world. You just have to be a good person, and you'll be happy, and you'll have wisdom. And, and there's the ticket right there. And the point of the Gita is to try to persuade you that you can go beyond this world to a higher world. And therefore, if you become attached to the physical world, you still have to come back again. have another You, know, you have to go through this uh, old age, disease, death experience, be reborn again to collect your rewards. Because you, you piled up all this good karma, now you've got to come back to receive it, get all your trophies. And so Krishna says, you're still in samsara. So precisely because sattva, goodness, is the highest stage of samsara, in a sense, for an intelligent person, it's the most seductive. It's because if you find, if you study wisdom all over the world, all over the world wisdom traditions, you know, people realize it's not good to be greedy and lusty and selfish and cruel and so on so there's a certain generic wisdom in the world and for intelligent people this life of wisdom and virtue is the most seductive in terms of it kind of persuades you that, to stay in this physical world rather than going to a truly spiritual world and then Krishna says jnana sangena." he says one is bound by the attachment and then also by jnana sangena by attachment to knowledge people want to enjoy their wisdom Why, I could say, people love to read books. And it's not that this is bad. I I don't mean to say it's like evil to like to read books. What Krishna is trying to say is that that the pure soul, the pure soul uh, experiences pure love. Pure love of God, pure love of other souls. And any attachment we have, like, I want to enjoy this, even if it's something relatively noble and sublime, like, I want to enjoy wisdom, Or, I want to enjoy the happiness of being a good person. It's still still got a a, a tiny, little poison pill in it. In the sense that we are still attached to enjoying this world. We're just going to do it through virtue and wisdom. But we're still attached to enjoying the world. And becoming completely free from any desire to enjoy the world is actually the stage of liberation. In this sense, it's very much like Buddhism. Or the Vedanta, the sense of recognizing that even the most noble, pious, wise, selfish desires are still there. And, and in a sense, that whole Buddhist discourse about uh, it doesn't exist, it doesn't not exist, it doesn't exist and not exist, it doesn't neither exist nor not exist and all that, is to kind of to make your wisdom computer crash. And... So you stop trying to enjoy being wise or trying to be wise and just sort of experience a higher truth. So, in a sense, this is the same thing, but it's not done by crashing your computer. It's done just by straightforwardly telling you. And it's not like like there's one very famous story in Buddhism where someone asked the Buddha if if there's an eternal self, and he just didn't answer. And then there's all these interpretations. Well, Buddha didn't answer because if he would have said there is a soul, the person would have misunderstood what he really meant, but he said there's no soul. That also implies there was a soul, but doesn't exist anymore. They go through this whole thing. But here, it's not sort of like, I won't answer your question because you'll misunderstand. It's just straightforwardly saying this is what it is. It's not. This is not psychological, it's philosophical. We went through that whole discussion that in Buddhism, uh, a lot of the uh, teachings even when we're understood by later Buddhist philosophers to be primarily psychological, they're, they're meditation techniques, like Zen koans, where, where it's just sort of telling you things that appear to be contradictory, or not answering questions, or you're a Buddhist monk, and your guru teacher comes in one day and hits you over the head with a rod or something, and then, and then I got it, I saw the light. And so, here, in the Bhagavad Gita, It's not about all kinds of techniques to, like, freak you out or jar you into a certain recognition or I won't answer your question. It's just straightforwardly laying it out. It's like this, it's like this, and it's like this. It's not technique, it's not tactic, it's just saying. Krishna's saying what he means and he means what he says. It's just straight philosophy. And so the idea here is that um, we have to go beyond mundane virtue, which for a good, spiritually inclined person ordinary, worldly, virgin wisdom is the most seductive. Precisely because, well, maybe I will stay in this world and just do the virtue thing. So, so that's it. Any questions on that? Any points on that? Yes? Can I ask something regarding the sure. food? Yeah, or even stock market or anything. <laughs> okay. The whole food without balance thing? Yes. Okay, so Relatively. Okay. So it's don't kill a cow and then don't eat meat from the cow. Now, if the cow dies, just dies, and then you eat it, is that okay? Yeah, 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 that's, that was, I mean, generally in India, the people who are more in the rabbinical culture wouldn't do it, but they wouldn't consider that to be bad karma. The cow dies, naturally. Do you want to eat that cow, though? What's that? Would you want to eat that cow? Personally? Right. Yeah, but no, it's issues. yeah. Left. Yeah, on, on a moral level they, they wouldn't consider that to be. And actually all the cows in the world, if you wait long enough, will die. <laughs> 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 so, nothing else in those points? Let's see there's anything else chapter fourteen. You can get, like like in prison, you know, have an early release program here today. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, a few important things Krishna says at the end of this chapter. Well, Arjuna asks, Kailinga, how do we know that someone has gone beyond the most? Because <clears throat> transcendence, to transcend, to be liberated, precisely means to go beyond these three gunas, including sattva, including goodness. And so Arjuna says, how do you know someone's really gone beyond them? Krishna answers when a person is not attached to any of the modes. In other words, you're not attached to enlightenment. You're not attached to enlightenment or the joys of passion or ignorance. You're not attached to any of them. And you don't miss them when they're not there, then you're you transcended. Krishna ends this chapter by saying that the easy that ultimately you go beyond the modes by pure love. By by pure love, which is not an easy thing because I mean, to really love someone is hard. If you think of it in a relationship, whether it's parents and children, or you know, lovers or friends, to actually be in a relationship without any selfishness whatsoever is a real hard trick. I mean, try it. It's uh, to be in a relationship with no vanity, no selfishness. It's very difficult. But Krishna says that if you really do come to this point of pure bhakti, pure devotion you do transcend all three modes and you come to the spiritual platform. So, uh, there's, um, the spiritual platform is often called Shuddha Sattva, Shuddha means purified. It's goodness, but it's purified to the last trace of selfishness. Krishna ends chapter 14 with a very important statement where he claims to be the foundation of Brahman. As you remember from uh, Brahman, you know, the Upanishads you know, and the Vedas and uh, the Vedanta. The absolute Brahman. So Krishna, at the end of this chapter, says that I am the foundation, Pratishta in Sanskrit. I am the foundation of Brahman. The Brahman is resting on me. And uh, I'm the foundation of the eternal Dharma and the highest happiness. So that's the end of this chapter. are no questions, I guess we'll have them early release. So, no questions? Yes, one question. Sorry, if someone spoiled it. Yes. Oh. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Um, this whole idea of some Yes. A few, a few I saw they the state of, the state is kind of you know, and not Could you point out which verse that was? I mean, in 1217, I, I noticed that. 1217? Um, let's see. Uh, yeah, it doesn't mention the, the guna specifically in that verse. when you reach that state, you like neutral. Right, because, exactly, that's a very good point. Because generally, sorry, false promise. Anyway, very quickly, the idea is in this world there are dualities, polarities, like happiness and distress, or success and failure, victory and defeat, fame and infamy. And so we, we pursue fame, we avoid infamy, we pursue happiness, try to avoid pain we try for victory try to avoid defeat so we're bouncing between these dualities so Krishna says when you kind of like just pack it all up I mean like I don't care about winning or losing doesn't bother me winning doesn't thrill me uh, being famous doesn't really thrill me and people you know don't like me for you know, unfairly like if someone doesn't like me because I waited something wrong and I feel bad but Someone just doesn't like me. Like, I was basically fair and reasonable, but this person just doesn't like me. I don't care about it. So when you're beyond all these dualities, that's also a sign of transcendence. Because it's like if you go to some foreign country and you get totally involved in the local politics, so much so that you cancel your flight out of the country, drop out of college, renounce your family, because I just have to stay here and, and, and deal with this. And obviously to go back to your real life and your own country and your own family and all that... You have to just sort of let go of all the stuff that's going on in that other place, and so that's the idea that we're really meant to be in a, in a spiritual realm. We're down here in the material world. We've gotten really drawn into all the local politics here in this world, victory and defeat, fame and infamy. And you've got to sort of let go of all of it, and then you can go back to a high, to, go back to a higher platform. But does that mean that ultimately we're neutral? I mean, is our state of personality kind of a state of neutrality? toward material things. It's like, let's say you don't care about the football game. It doesn't mean you're not a person. It doesn't mean you don't have a personality. You just may not be concerned with a particular contest. So everyone in this world is fighting to win, trying not to lose. And So if you just say, I'm not into that contest. I have my own life as a a spiritual person. That's the idea. It's not sort of like a zombie neutrality. So now you really can go.